hand of the Lord was on me, and he brought me out by the Spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. He led me back and forth among them, and I sought a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. He asked me, Son of man, can these bones live? I said, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Then he said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, Dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the Sovereign Lord said to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound and the bones came together, bone to bone. I looked, and the tendons and the flesh appeared on them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied, and he commanded me, and the breath entered them. They came uh, to life and stood upon their feet, a vast army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say, Our bones are dried up, and our hope is gone, and we're cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, This is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I'm going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I am the Lord who has spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord.
Thanks, guys. So the spirit of a living God, we're going to talk about him this morning. Could you picture the scene as Kim, the voice of God, clearly, was uh, reading that passage? Ezekiel's brought out to a valley, and there's all these bones scattered. Here's uh, one artistic rendition of the scene. Not even skeletons at this point. These are just bones completely scattered. Skulls here, femurs, ribs, hands, just utterly scattered. A valley full of them. And, and God in verse 2 has Ezekiel wander, actually walk through all these bones. And it, it conjures up like movie scenes that we've seen or like the aftermath of some war scene. And he's walking through all these bones. And in verse 2 Two things he notices about the bones. One is that there's a great many of them. It's a big valley with lots of bones. And the second thing he notices in verse 2 is that they are very dry. These bones have been here for a while. Okay? There's, they are all dead. Uh, they are very dead and very dry. And we're told in verse 11 what they represent. Look at verse 11. God says to Ezekiel, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. So we're told that this is a metaphor. It's a, it's a symbol of Israel's situation living in exile. It's obviously not a, a, a literal thing, but it's a, it's a symbol of Israel's situation. And what they say, look at verse 11. Here's what Israel is saying. They say, our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. So it's a picture of their lives living in exile in Babylon. And so they're not literally dead, but they are, you could say the nation is as good as dead. They are living a living death right now. And I just want to remind you one last time what historically has happened. So these Israelites living in Babylon, about 10 years earlier, they had been living normal lives in their homes in Israel. And then the Babylonian armies came sweeping through Israel and started just, just, just decimating Israel. They took people killed people, and they took a bunch of them and carried them off into slavery. And so many of the people that are still alive, they've lost family members, they've lost close friends, and they've been carted away hundreds and hundreds of miles to Babylon where they're living in these slave encampments, and their lives are completely just decimated. All around them, they see examples of the power of Babylon, and Jerusalem has been destroyed, the temple's been destroyed. There's no home to go back to, even if, even if they could go back, even if they had the power to go back, which they don't. There'd be nothing to go back to. It's just smoke and ashes. And so they're saying in verse 11, our hope is gone. They are hopeless. They are powerless. They are lifeless as a nation, just like these dried bones. And so before I, we talk about what the Spirit does here, I, I want you to try to connect with, with what they're going through. Obviously, we probably have never gone through something as significant as this. But I want you to think back in your life and maybe even something right now. But I want you to connect with a situation that felt hopeless to you. And maybe your whole life wasn't hopeless, but the situation itself just felt hopeless. Maybe it was something where you, you felt powerless to make a change. You felt like you're just coming up against a dead end. You, you couldn't see a way through it. And maybe it was some circumstance, some situation around you. Maybe it was a relationship that you were in. Uh, it could have been a marriage that you're in or a situation with your kids where you just were like this. I, I don't, I, I just like, I feel like we're bumping up our heads. I don't know how to 
move through this. It could have been a, a financial situation that hit you. It could be a health situation. It could be a, the death of someone you love. Some situation around you where you just felt like, ah, I, my resources are, are done and I don't know what to do. Or maybe it was something, a situation inside your own heart. Uh, maybe it was an experience with, a, with an addiction that got a hold of you and that you became powerless over and you just, you couldn't see a way out or a depression that kind of sunk into your life and, and you just didn't know how to get out of it. Some character issue that you, you just felt powerless to change, all right? Just wanted you to think of a, a time where you've experienced something that felt hopeless, that felt dead, felt like a dead end and just take that, multiply it <laughs> to this nation that's saying it's over, it is over. Our bones are dried up. Our strength is gone. We are cut off from everything. That's the situation they find themselves in. So in that situation, enter the spirit of the living God. And that's what this passage is all about, the power of God's spirit. So if you look at the passage, the word spirit in the Hebrew shows up about 10 times in this passage. And I want to teach you the Hebrew word today. I want you all to say it. You'll feel really cool when you go home and tell your friends. So the, the Hebrew word for spirit is the word ruach. And you want to say it with a real breathy at the end, all right? So let's all try it. Ruach. Ruach. You can even hear. Yeah. The word in, in Hebrew can mean spirit. Some of you are just clearing your throats now. That's just, um, can mean spirit. It can mean breath. Or it can mean wind. It means all of those things. In fact, it, it has all those meanings in this passage. Look at verse 1. It says, he brought me out by the spirit. That's the ruach of God. But if you look at verse 5, God says, I will make breath enter you. That's also the word ruach. If you look at verse 9, midway through, it says, come from the four winds. That word for winds is ruach, spirit, wind, breath. And the ruach of God is this core reality throughout the Old Testament. I just want to walk you through a couple places where we see the ruach show up today. And then we'll look in the New Testament too. R-U-A-C-H would be the English translation. But it's in Hebrew letters, which wouldn't make any sense. But that's how you'd spell it in English. I just made that up right now. I just, you call my bluff. No, R-U-A-C-H. So I want to walk you through a couple places where we see God's Ruach show up in Scripture. And you don't have to go far in the Bible to find the Ruach of God. Genesis 1.1 starts, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, right? Verse 2 says this, now the earth was formless and void, darkness was over the surface of the deep. So apparently God started with this kind of swirling, formless and lifeless hunk of earth, the swirling watery mess, this chaotic thing that was without life, it was without order, uh, it was hopeless, it was chaotic. And the verse ends this way, you guys know this, and the ruach of God was hovering over the waters. That's verse two. So God's ruach is hovering over this chaotic, swirling mess, and then from there, you know the story, God starts acting. And he creates order and light and darkness and land and sea and all the life and diversity and order that we have and the beauty of our creation. His ruach is hovering, and then God acts on this chaotic mess. Or we can think of uh, chapter 2 of Genesis, where, where we get kind of a, a, uh, 
a zoomed-in view of God's creation of humanity, creation of man and woman in the Garden of Eden. God creates the garden. In 2 verse 7, it says this, the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. So God in this intimate act takes dust and he forms a man, head, right, legs, the whole thing, and yet it's still without life. It's just this hunk of uh, man-shaped dust, <laughs> a corpse, essentially. And then the verse ends with this. And God breathed into his nostrils the ruach of life, and the man became a living being. What was lifeless, all of a sudden, through the, pure, the power of God's ruach, this man becomes a living being and, and is alive. I was also thinking of the greatest act of deliverance in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus, when God frees the Jewish nation from slavery in Egypt. He brings these plagues, 10 plagues, finally convinces Pharaoh to let the people go. You guys know the story, and the people are, are escape from Egypt. They're moving out, and then Pharaoh changes his mind, and he sends his armies after the Israelites. They're out towards the desert, towards the Red Sea. And they come up to the edge of the Red Sea, and they come to a dead end, essentially. And they're stuck in the Red Sea, and they're looking back, and here's Pharaoh's armies coming. They're, they're, they're caught. <laughs> they're, they're done. They're powerless. They're hopeless. And Moses says something very strange. He says to them in that moment, don't be afraid. The Lord will fight for you. You need only to be still. Okay, that's the last word of advice I would expect to hear in that moment. Just be still, and God will fight for you. And it goes on to say this. And all night, the Lord drove the sea back with a ruach from the east and turned it into dry land. This dead end is there, and the ruach of God parts these seas and makes a way of hope for Israel. And I could go on in the Old Testament talking about how God's ruach would fill his judges and they would go out and lead Israel, Israel's armies, how he'd fill Israel's kings and they would govern, how he'd fill prophets like Ezekiel, they'd speak truth to the people. But when you see, when you read about the ruach of God in the Old Testament, you get the sense that the ruach is God's own powerful, life-giving presence, active in his creation particularly to bring life, to bring newness, to bring hope, to bring freedom, especially shows up when human resources have come to an end, when something looks hopeless or powerless, or when just human resources are tapped. The Holy Spirit of God. This is Exodus. This is good. Good work. Are you with me still? That's cool. No, this is probably better than I was, I, what I was doing. <laughs> So the presence of God, active in his creation, at work, and when the Ruach shows up, you kind of expect things to happen, <laughs> and things happen. And, and I was thinking uh, of, of a memory last summer of the wind, and how it's a good metaphor. And, uh, so last summer, we had like a, a four-day four period of just like scorching heat. Remember, we had, we've had a couple rough... Uh, summer's late. We had like four, week, four days of intense heat, no AC in my house, three little kids, so that's kind of a bad, sticky combination of things. Um, but we were with some friends one night after four, four days of it, we're, and we're out in their backyard having dinner, and everyone's just kind of, you're just, it's just the air stagnant, and you're just like so over it. 
And then it all happened like in a, in a minute, you just felt the wind shift and the ocean breeze started blowing in. And we're just like, ah, oh, yes, <laughs> life again. We all know that feeling. And it's a great picture of the Ruach of God who can, can blow in and make things happen, especially when human resources have come to their end. And that's exactly what we see, of course, in this chapter of Ezekiel 37. You've got these bones that are dried up, they're lifeless, they're powerless. And then in verse 4 through 10, I won't read it again, but you have this picture of the Ruach of God blowing through this valley, and these bones start joining up again, you know, bone to bone, and then tendons and sinews, and they, they become fully fleshed men and women. And then in the final act, that's such an echo of Genesis 2, God then breathes into their nostrils, and they actually become living beings again, this vast army. And it is a picture of what God is going to do with hopeless Israel. In this, in this passage, okay? It's a symbolic representation of what God is going to do, which is he's going to radically change their circumstances by the power of his spirit. He's going to change their external circumstances. He's going to take them out of exile. He'll bring them back into the land by the power of his spirit. He's going to change their internal circumstances. We looked at that last two weeks. He's going to give them new hearts, create new spirits within them. And all of this is going to happen by the power of his spirit. As it says, look at verse 14. That's, it really sums up the passage well. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken, and I have done it, declares the Lord. And all through the power of his spirit, his ruach. It's a beautiful picture. Now, as New Testament Christians, we see this theme of God's spirit continue and reach its fulfillment. So I want to I give you a couple other places where we see the same image carried out as, as New Covenant Christians. We can see in this passage where it clearly is referring to the nation of Israel in the context, but we can see echoes of this image. It becomes this beautiful image of what God can do in a person's heart in giving them new life and giving them new spiritual life, making them born again, to use the, the common phrase. This is how Jesus describes this in John 3. Jesus says, you shouldn't be surprised at my saying you must be born again. If you want to follow me, you have to be born again. And then he starts talking about the Ruach of God. Flesh gives birth to flesh. You can be born of flesh, biologically born. You'll just be flesh. But the Ruach, the Spirit, can give birth to spiritual life in you. And then he goes on to talk about the wind. The wind, it blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you can't tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Ruach. <laughs> okay, he's saying God's spirit is at work in the world. And you, you can't always predict what he's going to do. You can't control him, but he can move. And when he does, he can breathe life into a person's heart and give them new life. Many of us have, have experienced this, right? We've experienced what happened to Adam Physically is what happens to people spiritually, that we could live our lives for years being dead to God, meaning being unresponsive to him, not caring about God and who he is and his truths, and then his spirit can breathe, and all of a sudden he gives us new hearts, he gives us these new hungers, these new desires, and, and desires we used to have that, that what life was all about, we're like, that, I don't care about that anymore, now I want you, I want you, God, I want to live life with you, it's his spirit breathing, making us new spiritually. 
This is what happened to the first century disciples, of course, when, uh, when Jesus had these men and women who, who followed him. They followed him for three years, and they kind of got it, and they kind of didn't for three years, you know? I mean, they kinda, their hearts were kind of hard, kind of soft. They were, they were just kind of clunking along, and then Jesus died, and he was raised in that, that first Easter day, raised up to new life, and then he appeared to them in the upper room. Remember what he said? He says, peace be with you. You have to say peace because they were scared that he was a ghost. Peace, it's okay, be with you. And then he says, as the Father sent me on a mission, I'm sending you on a mission. And then he does something interesting. With that, he breathed on them, which would be an interesting experience to have a man breathe on you, and said, receive the holy ruach. Receive the spirit. It was this beautiful symbolic act And then 40 days later, it actually was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Many of you know the story. When the day of Pentecost came, this is 40 days later, they were all together in one place. They're praying for God to work. And suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent ruach came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. These these men who had been kind of half-hearted, trying to figure this out, all of a sudden he gave them this passion. And these crowds that had just been interested in the miracles but were hard of heart, all of a sudden you started seeing people come to faith by the thousands because the Spirit was blowing and breathing and doing the work that only he can do. But we receive spiritual life by the Spirit of God. And one final thing I want to mention is, of course, we also will receive resurrection life one day by the Spirit of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 8. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who lives in you. The idea is that one day we will die. And these biological bodies will die and they will decay, they will be buried, they'll be cremated, they'll be whatever they're going to be. And when Christ returns, that ruach, his ruach is going to blow again and bring us to life and give us these resurrection bodies, spirit-filled resurrection bodies that are capable of living forever. In Ezekiel, this dry bones vision is just a metaphor. It's just a metaphor for hope for Israel. But one day this will be fulfilled literally (laughs) in those of us who believe where we get these new bodies and all of it by the spirit, by the ruach of God. Pretty cool? Yeah? Amen? I have nothing to explain today. I, I, wanna, I just wanted to just point out who the Spirit is and what He does. And I wanted to leave us by just reminding us of a very simple but very important truth, which is this, that as Christians, we are people of the Spirit, <laughs> And we forget that sometimes. And so I just wanted to remind you, as a Christian, you are a a, a man or woman of the Spirit, that the Spirit defines who we are, that our lives are all about the presence of the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who gave us spiritual life. The Spirit is the one who guides us daily. The Spirit is the one who comforts us and convicts us. The Spirit is the one who produces the fruit of Jesus' character in us. Love, joy, peace, patience. The Spirit is one who gives us gifts to minister to other people. One day the Spirit will raise us bodily so that we can experience eternal life. From start to finish, we are people of the Spirit. And sometimes we forget that. 
And I would say, especially some of us in the, in the circles that we have run in historically, I would count myself in this, we can forget that. Sometimes our, our working trinity is Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures, okay? That's sort of our working trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. I understand the Father. I understand Jesus' Son. A spirit, I, I never quite understood what he's all about. And so he becomes kind of the forgotten member of the Trinity. And I don't know what to do with him, but I like Jesus. I like God the Father. And I know he's there somewhere, but I don't know what to do with him. Holy Scriptures, I get that. And of course, the truth is this, the Scriptures and the Spirit are so intertwined. But the Spirit is, is utterly central to what it means to be a believer. Now, practically speaking, what does it mean to be people of the Spirit? Well, what I want to suggest today, practically speaking, it means to be people of faith. <laughs> Simple as that. It means to be people who live by faith, who trust that God's powerful, life-giving presence is at work in us and around us. And what that means is that pretty much anything is possible, actually. <laughs> that at any moment, that wind can start blowing again and bring life and bring freedom, and bring hope, and bring conviction in situations that feel hopeless, that where we feel powerless or helpless in our own lives or in someone else's, someone else's life. We live by faith, trusting that, God, you are at work through your spirit, and you're still at work through your spirit. I want to put up that, that passage that I just had up a second ago. Hear it again. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, and I just want to stop right there. <laughs> you hear that? The, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead, the same power that brought a man back to life from the dead is living in you. That spirit is alive. If you've given your life to Jesus, that spirit is alive in you and in me. Imagine if we believed that and lived daily as though that were actually true. And it is true. It means living a life of faith in the power and presence of God in us and around us. And what a life of faith means, I think practically, is that uh, we need to work on abandoning this life of self-reliance that we tend to construct for ourselves. We need to move away from this life of, of self-reliance where we take control of our lives and, and, and we define our lives and, and we look to ourselves and to move to this life of faith where we look to God and we surrender to him and trust that he's going to do things. And that, I just want to say, that's a really hard thing to do because pretty much everything in our lives is pushing us towards self-reliance, okay? Certainly everything in our culture is pushing us towards, it's about you developing the skills, the gifts, the resources, the financial resources, the connections, the tools you need to, to be self-reliant, to be able to live life the way you think you can. And, and, and so we start measuring our lives by what is possible according to our own set of resources. That's all that we can imagine is what our resources can conjure up. And when problems come in our lives, rather than, well, what we tend to do is we jump into fix-it mode. We, we jump into problem-solving, we start strategizing, we start planning, rather than stopping first and saying, God, your spirit can do things that I can't do in this situation. I, I'm going to start, and I'm just going to ask you, would you, would you breathe, would you blow again into this, this person's life or into this relational situation or into my own heart? 
Would you do what only you can do? And, and of course, the planning, the strategizing is not bad. That's part of what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus. But that's not fundamentally what it means to be a person of the Spirit. And so what does it mean to go to God first? God, I need you to do what only you can do by the power of your Spirit. I was thinking of uh, this passage this week uh, from Galatians. Paul is writing to a group of people, uh, and he's very angry with them. I'll just let you know that. This is his angriest letter. He had come through this, this town and uh, preached the gospel. People had come to faith, and the Spirit had entered people's lives, and, and their lives were being transformed and changed, and then he left the town. And over time, other people came in and said, you got to go back to the law. You gotta, it's about obedience and, and, and doing God's commandments. That's how you earn your keep with God. And Paul, in this, in this book, in this letter, saying, oh, guys, are you so foolish? After beginning with the Spirit, are you now trying to attain your goal by mere human effort? Guys, you came to faith by the Spirit. When you became Christian, the Spirit was alive. Why are you going back to your mere human efforts now about what you can do, what you can control? But I feel like th that is such a temptation, especially if we've been in the church for years. Uh, you know, some of you, you can remember when you came to faith and what it was like. And you remember it was about surrendering. Like you, you, you were living your life and you realized, Lord, I need to surrender my life to you. I believe in you. I want to give up control to you. I surrender to you. You run my life, Jesus. My life is yours. And we found the freedom that comes from surrendering control. And we saw him work and change us and grow us. But over time, over the years, it's so easy, and I totally relate to this, to start taking back control of parts of our lives from God. And all the while, we still believe, I still believe Jesus died for my sins, but I keep taking back pieces and control, and it becomes about self-sufficiency again with a little bit of God sprinkled in. And Paul's saying, why would you do that? <laughs> it starts with the Spirit. It continues with the Spirit. It ends with the Spirit. Don't go back to mere human effort. Stick with the Spirit of the living God, which is to say, live a life of faith. And the, the thing is, God loves to have us in that place where we feel out of control. <laughs> that place where, where we feel a little powerless, where we, we don't know what to do, like Israel was. Those are the places that he often brings people to because that's when we're finally open to his Spirit doing something that we can never do for ourselves, which is to bring life freedom, newness, joy, whatever he wants to bring. I want to leave you with a, a well-known passage, and I want, to, want you to ask yourself, what would it look like in this season of my life to live according to this passage? This is another prophet. This is Zechariah, where God says, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit says the Lord Almighty. God's about to do a work in Israel at that time. And he's saying, and it's not going to happen by human means, by the strength of men, the resources that humanity has to offer. It's going to happen by the power of my spirit. And so I want to leave you with that simple question. In this season of my life, knowing what I just heard about your spirit, Lord, what would it mean for me to live, not by my own might, not by my own power, but what would it look like to live by your spirit? which is to say by faith, by trusting that you're at work and asking you to do the things that only you can do. What would that look like for you? I want to lead us in a time of prayer.
I'm going to have you guys just close your eyes and uh, give you a little space to converse with the Lord on this. And what what I have you ask yourself is, what is the situation in your life right now? Uh, where you just need God's spirit to, to breathe new life, where, where you, need, you need God to work in a fresh way. What's something you're going through right now? It might be something that's in your own heart and mind. Like I said earlier, maybe there's some addiction where you just feel powerless over it. Uh, an emotional situation that you just... Your own resources have come to the limits. You don't know what to do. And maybe it's not something internal, but maybe it's a, a circumstance around you, a, a relational situation that's complicated. You just can't see a way through it, a, a financial situation, a, a, something with your health or with your job. It could be anything, but something where maybe God is saying, hey, before you jump to your strategies and your plans, which are all great, and you need to do that, but before you do that, what would it look like to do this, not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit? Where, you, where do you need to ask God, God, I just need you to, I need you to do it. What only you can do? I can't, I cannot figure this one out on my own. I can't do it. I'm not strong enough. I'm not smart enough. Whatever. So why don't you take some time and just have a conversation. Ask him uh, to, to breathe his spirit into this situation for 